learning how to relate to the experience of fear with understanding and compassion. Our meditation practice is completely experiential. And through the process of opening with awareness to our own experience, our own moment-to-moment life, we're developing an awareness that can help us see clearly and to understand our own experience. So the practice is learning how to take one of our own steps at a time, one of our own breaths at a time, one whole landscape of fear at a time, or one landscape of sadness at a time. It's really learning how to surrender to what's happening in the present moment on a very deep level. Because the practice is experiential, we tend to judge our practice by what's happening. But the freedom in the practice, the happiness, the peace, happens when our happiness isn't based on our experience. And that can seem like a paradox. But basically it means that we're developing a relationship of compassion and understanding with our own experience. We want very much to be at home in this world. We want the experience of a deep inner security. And this deep inner security is based on the awareness that we're developing from our own experience. And this pure awareness that we're developing isn't tied in any way to our experience. The freedom comes from developing this pure awareness or inner home that's stronger than experience itself. So ultimately, freedom comes from our understanding of how life is, which is based on our own experience. The less we understand how life is, the less security we experience and the more fear. One of the greatest insights we can have in our practice is to understand that we really never know what's going to happen, moment by moment, that anything can happen, no matter how much we can try to control our experience, that the truth is that anything can happen. And I see a lot of the practice is developing an attention that can handle that that can cope with that truth. The Buddha taught that all life is change, and it's because of this movement and change that we all share this incredible insecurity, this incredible vulnerability, meaning that we never know what's going to happen. And this is an aspect of dukkha, or suffering this sharing of uh, intense vulnerability. All All beings experience this kind of suffering. All beings who are born into this world experience this truth that we never know what's going to happen. Whether it's the deer here now in hunting season, Can you imagine what that feels like? It's just bow season right now, but soon it'll be with guns. And can you you relate to that experience that the deer are having now with a sense of compassion and understanding? We're just like those deer, that vulnerable. How do, we, how do we develop a healthy relationship to our own life, to our own experience? In this practice, we learn how to 
fully connect with our experience, to really be deeply inside our experience, to know the experience from the inside. But at the same time, we're also learning how to detach from our experience, to observe our experience from the outside. And this is when we have that larger context and spaciousness around experience. And these seem very different this really connecting with experience deeply from the inside and really detaching from experience from the outside. But the practice is really being able to develop a balance of both. We're not just connecting, we're not just detaching, but we're learning how to very deeply connect to life, open to life, and to understand it through this balance of connection and detachment. Just to survive on this planet, you know, the amount of energy, not only with our own species, but with all species, the amount of energy that goes into survival is it's extraordinary. One of the wonderful things about being on retreat is how much energy is freed up to explore because we're not on that level of having to survive. When the temperatures here start to drop in November, I know people in this state that can't afford to heat their homes. You know, there are many people right now that are really cold. They don't have warmth. And we can have the luxury of going out into the cold and doing walking meditation but we come back into a warm building. Many people don't have that luxury. It takes a lot of energy to be comfortable. It takes a lot of energy to survive. If you can just kind of even imagine what the world of an infant is like, you know, the infant being totally dependent on others for survival. We've all been through that journey from infant to child to adult. And even if you consider the basics of what we need, whether it's just warmth to survive or the amount of nourishment of food that we need to survive, or whether you count the emotional guidance and warmth that we need or the direction, just what it takes for life you know, the gift of life, the preciousness of life, and then to expand that to the rarity and preciousness to be in this kind of situation. You know, it's an incredible gift. We're not just surviving here comfortably. We're so well taken care of. There's all this energy to look more deeply, to understand. It's the greatest gift of all. So if you consider what it's like for most people on the planet, if we get our survival needs met, at some point there's a tendency to start looking beyond that and to ask, you know, the the spiritual question, what are we doing here on this earth anyway? You know, what how did this happen? Just taking birth is such a mysterious thing that we landed here somehow on this planet. And when we take a look at what it's like to live here, all beings who take birth, no fear. We know the fear of physical pain. Even when I got sick, it was always this, every day I'd wake up and I'd think, is the mucus gone? <laughs> you know, is it, how long is it really going to last? You know, will it last forever? Um, there's the, you know, anytime you get a deep physical pain on the retreat, you know, there's that feeling of insecurity. How, what is it? Where did it come from? How long is it going to last? There's the fear of emotional pain. In some, it's some, in some ways, emotional pain is so much harder than physical pain mental pain. There's a fear of the unknown, the fear of death. 
there's a quotation from a poem that I like a lot by a poet named Galway Cannell, and he, this little part of it, he says, can you bless, can you bless, or at least not curse, everything that struggles to stay alive on this planet? Because of this struggle to stay alive on this planet, if you listen deeply, you can hear the cries for security from all beings. When I was young, I used to catch frogs and turtles, and I had a little frog and turtle pen by my house. And I thought it was really cool. And I used to catch big turtles and little turtles. And one day I, I had caught a bullfrog, which was my big you know, heroic act. And I had the bullfrog in the frog pen, and then I caught this little baby frog uh, later that day. And I was putting the baby frog in the frog <laughs> pool, and the bullfrog opened its mouth and ate it. it you know, it's just like, it was so horrific to me. I, it was just like, I went screaming, just screaming out, you know, through the neighborhood. I was just, Total freak out. And I couldn't believe a frog would eat a frog. You know, it's just like unthinkable to me. Uh, but then it was like, oh. <laughs> and I put all the turtles and the frogs back. It was like, I don't want anything to do with this. I really shut down uh, for a while. <laughs> so there's cries for, you know, we eat, <laughs> we tend to be eating all forms of life too. That was finally what I started to come to, that even when we're vegetarian, you know, there are things on the cabbage, little beings that you can't avoid. You know, life feeds on life. It's not an easy thing to face here. And with, because of this struggle to stay alive, there are cries for physical and emotional and mental and spiritual security. And as I said before, there's so many kinds of fears. It would, could be all night that I listed them, but there's a fear of not surviving. There's a fear of darkness, a fear of fear. You know, we have the fear of not doing the practice right, of not, not waking up, of fear of sickness or rejection. Fear <clears throat> and the experience of experiencing oneself as separate are inseparable. And the feeling of being a solid, separate self and fear are, are just so connected, you can't untangle that. And you've heard us talk many times about that the Buddha taught that life is this stream of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings in consciousness and that we have no control of, of that stream of change. And so understanding that means understanding you know, the ultimate vulnerability from that moment-to-moment -moment perspective of incredible insecurity. And it's because we fear unpleasant experiences that we suffer. And it's because we get so attached to pleasant experiences that we suffer. And so the avoiding of the unpleasant and the seeking of the pleasant is a search for security. It's a search for feeling less vulnerable, more secure. We, can, we think we can control what's happening because we don't understand this process. It's because we don't understand its ignorance. Any time where we can really open to the experience of pleasantness and when it passes to let it pass, or when we have an unpleasant experience arise and we can open to that experience without withdrawing from it or pushing it away, that's allowing ourselves to be vulnerable, to be open, to recept be receptive. And that's, that requires a receiving and alertness. It's this balance that's um, so ephemeral. And that feeling will be 
of one of being at home in this world, of being more secure. And it, it, it's based on mindfulness. Anytime we can do that, there's happiness. And to me, that it's like the crux of the Buddha's teaching. And I was reading recently a book uh, about different cultures on this earth and the expression of um, spirituality in these cultures. And so one of the cultures this woman chose is Marshall McLuhan's daughter. She chose uh, Japan. And this is a little discourse. It's, it's a little long, but I, it's quite interesting. It was written in the year 1345. And this um, Zen teacher, Muso Sasaki, um, was opening his Zen temple in the garden in Kyoto. And so he became the founding abbot of this temple, and this is how he opened the temple. The appearance in this world of all Buddhas, past, present, and future, is solely for the purpose of preaching the law and helping all creatures to be liberated. What is that which we call the law? It is the truth inherent in all its perfection in every living creature. The sage possesses it in no greater measure than does the ordinary person. Enlarge it, and it will fill the universe. Restrict it, and it can be contained in a fraction of an inch. Yesterday or today, it undergoes no change or variation. All that the Buddhas have taught, whether Mahayana or Hinayana, the pseudo or the authentic, the partial or the complete, all are embraced in it. This is the meaning of the law. Everything the world contains, grass and trees, bricks and tile, all creatures, all actions, all activities, are nothing but manifestations of this law. Therefore, it is said that all phenomena in the universe bear the mark of this law. If the significance of this were only grasped, then even without the appearance in this world of a Buddha, the enlightenment of people would be complete. And even without the construction of this temple, the propagation of the law would have been realized. As for myself, appearing before you today on this platform, I have nothing special to offer as my own interpretation of the law. I merely join myself with all others, the other Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, saints, and fully enlightened beings, to all those here present, including the very eaves and columns of this hall, lanterns and posts, as well as the people, the animals, the plants, and the seeds in the boundless ocean of existence, to keep the wheel of the law in motion. That's what we're doing here. This happiness that I was just describing, when we really can be vulnerable, when we really are truly present, letting the, letting the vulnerability be there, going through the fear, is, is what allows us to touch that law, the truth of things, and touch this happiness that we all have access to, any being. So how do we experience fear in our meditation practice? We can have the experience of fear with the insight into impermanence. As we get quiet, we usually start to see how delicate being in the present moment really is. 
And we see how difficult it is to be in the present moment because it's things, the objects of awareness, are moving so quickly. This is impermanence. And so when we start to notice that, fear can come up in so many ways. It's like just to have the experience to be able to notice a thought one can see is really hard. And there can be fear of that. This is hard to do. Being in the present moment is simple, but not so easy. Pleasant experiences pass. It's already November. I mean, in some ways, the course is going so quickly. You know, it's staggering. For those, I think, who've been here already, it's hard to believe it's more than half over. It, it goes so agonizingly slow sometimes, but in a way, it, it goes so quick. Or if you notice aging. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can think when you're a child that being 80 is so far away. And then as we get older, it's not so far away. And in fact, it goes so quickly. As we start to get more aware, we realize how much we've been missing of our life. And that's terrifying. You know, it's like, oh, better get it together. (laughs) You know, it's really amazing. You can have a whole lifetime go by and not notice anything. That's easy to do. It's harder to go through that vulnerability, to face it over and over again to be able to be here fully. We can have the experience of fear with the insight into dukkha, into that understanding that we never know what's going to happen because life is moving so quickly. I think that the experience of someone dying for us is always a such a waking up to that truth that we never know what's going to happen. It has usually the most impact for us. A little while ago, my niece um, had her husband die, and she's pretty young, and she has three children, uh, and her husband just suddenly dropped dead. There was no warning. It was just sudden, quick. And after that, she started having anxiety attacks, very strong fear attacks, anxiety attacks, and just strong terror of death. And recently, her grandmother started to die and was in the hospital and eventually uh, went into a coma. And we were all in the family just wondering, well, how long is this going to go on? And it was just really hard. It's really hard when people are in the hospital for a long time and you don't know what's going to happen. My niece is really afraid of death and one day she just decided that she'd go to the hospital on by herself, which was really hard for her. And she went and something happened that was so healing for her. She decided she got right into the bed with her grandmother. She sat there and she started singing to her. And she has a beautiful voice and she's, she's Christian, and she started uh, singing, uh, what's the song? Um, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Uh, and her grandmother died. You know, it was like she let go. All she needed was that encouragement. You know, her, my niece finished the song, told her it was okay to let go, and she died. And my niece is just like so different. She's not having anxiety attacks. She's just much more open to that sense that dying is part of life. Dying is okay. She went through it. She was so close to it. She touched it in a way that was so positive rather than negative. There's an Aztec poem, Not Forever on Earth. Perchance, do we truly live on Earth? Not forever on Earth, but briefly here. Be it jade, it too will be broken. Be it gold, 
it too will be melted, and even the plume of the Quetzal decays, not forever on earth, but briefly here. It's so quick, it's so brief. Do we truly live here on earth? And we can't if we're not paying attention with this mindfulness that we're developing. We can have the experience of fear with that insight into anatta, or emptiness. I remember one time I was sitting in this hall, and I just was sitting there, and I just, the attention just kind of went right into my tongue. <laughs> and it was like, not my tongue, but it was just this strange dryness, uh, and the sensations of dryness. And I kept thinking, my tongue, this is, it was like this incredible insight into that it was just dryness, no me, no I, no tongue, no body, just dryness, just that momentary experience of dryness that if we put that together with many mind moments, we string them together and that dryness becomes my tongue in my body. We become identified and that's how we get into fear because we think that that experience of dryness is glued together into this whole body and then we have to protect it, we have to defend it. Any time that we think that I am my body, there's this room for fear. Any time that we think that I am my thoughts, there's this room for fear. Any time we think that I'm my heart, there's the room for fear. Understanding anatta, understanding emptiness, is really being able to see just that momentary process of dryness, tingling, pressure, heat. This is the body, it's just a moment-to-moment -moment change, nothing solid. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a great scholar, calls these four primary elements of earth, air, fire, and water that make up what we call my body as pulsations of actuality. You know, so just think of what we think of as our body. He says, pulsations of, actua pulsations of actuality which arise from the net of antecedent conditions persist for an infinitesimal, infinitesimal moment and then perish becoming a condition for other dhammas. That's me. <laughs> Pulsations of actuality. It's so brief. Infinitesimal, momentary process that we glue together and then we get afraid of losing it. Sometimes when I feel like I can't withstand that seeing that, that the mind and body is that transitory and that insubstantial, I find that being in nature will be soothing or reassuring. It's like I see that um, emptiness outside of myself and it feels more acceptable than it being <laughs> me. Uh, and this is a little quotation, it's a poem that a man called Po Lo Tien wrote. And he dug a pool um, where he lived, and beside the pool he planted some bamboo. And he cared for this bamboo with a lot of love and wrote a poem about it. He said, the bamboo, its heart is empty. It has become my friend. The water, its heart is pure. It has become my teacher. It's so simple and so beautiful. It's like that outer reflection can really help us, not only help us, but it's like our teacher, the bamboo. Its heart is empty, just like our heart is empty. But it has become my friend. The water, its heart is pure. It has become my teacher. How many times has a star or the sound of the rain, you know, been helpful for us to open to this 
transitoriness of experience. You know, it's unimaginable how helpful the sound of the rain can be. So what is our relationship to fear when fear appears? It's the most important is to see how we're relating to the experience of fear. So we can relate to the experience of fear from the perspective of physical sensation. Often the experience of fear has corresponding physical sensations in the body and we can notice the physical sensations arising and passing, that it's not solid. Or we can see that it can be just a mental state, just physical sensations appearing and disappearing, just thoughts coming and going, just the deep emotion arising and passing, not me, I, or mine. And we can learn to relate to fear in the same way that we would listening to a sound appearing and disappearing. It's a very similar listening, listening to the sound of the rain, listening to the fear. We learn that equality of valuing of the experience. They can be equally open to and understood. Sometimes the experience of fear can be very visceral, very intense, but quick. Sometimes it can be light and last long, or it can be intense and last long. It can manifest so many different ways. I find that often <clears throat> when fear comes up and it's strong, that I usually need to open to the experience with compassion first. You know, it's like creating that open view of it, looking at it from a distance, and holding, it's like holding that pain with care. You know, there's much less fear of fear if we can step back from it and look at it with care. We don't have to be inside the experience of fear at that point and get more terrified. It's like you step back from it, one detaches from it and just cares about it. It's quite amazing to me that if you think of the amount of insecurity in this world, whether it's inside of us or outside of us, and that we can transform that awareness of insecurity into this compassion, <laughs> you know, it's um, such a wonderful thing to do. Kuan Yin is the bodhisattva of compassion. And we can learn to ex experience our own fear as the Kuan Yin would relate to the fear. It's like Kuan Yin is described as someone who can hear all the cries of this world. She can hear all the cries of the world, but she can hear all the joy and laughter. In many ways, she's a great listener. You might say that she's a perfect listener. When I experience fear, I often try to have that sense of listening to it, like I would listen to a laugh or listen to a cry. Aiken Roshi, who's a great Zen teacher in Hawaii, says, what we need is lightness. What we need is insecurity. What we need is all sounds to enter. Letting the fear enter, listening to it, opening to it, letting it move through our system, letting the fear move through our body and mind, rather than tightening around it. It's quite inspiring to be able to do that, if we can. There's a movie that I like a lot called What About Bob? And in it, Bill Murray is a, a very scared being throughout the movie. And he describes the physical sensations of fear as hot sweats, cold sweats, lips turning numb, pelvic discomfort, fingernail sensitivity, <laughs> dead hands, involuntary trembling, 
lips turning now. <laughs> and then I can add a few, the blood can drain out of your body and you can feel weak. Your legs can start shaking. Uh, and if my, fear is mild, it's basically not being able to be here. A lot of the time when we're just mildly wandering, it's fear. Or when we're planning a lot, you can look closely and it's fear. It doesn't have to be really intense. It can be very mild. If we explore fear very carefully, we can see that what we're afraid of is usually not happening right in the present moment. Usually there's an association in that moment of fear with something in the past. It's like at some point something unpleasant happened. We have the memory of that unpleasantness and the memory is one of not having been able to open to that unpleasant situation. So the, the fear comes up in the present moment, but it's really that we're remembering not having been able to open to something and we got overwhelmed by it and we project that into the future and we get afraid of the same thing happening again. So it's usually not what's happening right in the moment. Usually we're afraid of something in the future uh, and we're afraid that we're not going to be able to cope with that unpleasant situation that we were overwhelmed by sometime in the past. One of the wonders of meditation is that we want so much to open to life, but we don't want to hurt. And we want to connect deeply to how life really is, but then we don't really want to experience any pain. And if you look at, you know, this predicament that we're in, it's, it's like we want to be able to let go of control and just flow into the universe with a sense of ease and oneness. That's what we want. We want this loss of separate self. We want to be able to flow into the universe. But there's two aspects to fear. There's the fear of the annihilation or the extinction of our separate self. You know, we want to lose it if it's going to be pleasant. <laughs> but we don't want to get annihilated by pain. And that's what we tend to think is the choice. So we have a very deep yearning for oneness and for this complete letting go of being separate because it's so painful. Being separate is so painful. Uh, and being in the present moment when we completely let go of the past and completely let go of the future is a death. It's a loss. It's like we let go totally of past and future. And that takes a lot of courage. That moment when we're completely in the moment, we're completely vulnerable. It's insecure because it's unknown. If you really let go of the past or the future, it's really beginning. It's being new newborn. That moment is totally new. The fear of hurt or pain is so strong in all of us. And this is where that sense of being a separate self and fear are so inseparable. Every time that we become aware of fear, it's really presenting us with this wonderful choice. We can either shut down and withdraw you know, from the, from the pain and feel separate. And that's okay. We know how to do that really well. We have that choice of shutting down, closing off, or we have the challenge of feeling what's there, of being with whatever we might be afraid of. When we're lost in fear, if you look closely, you'll see that usually what you're lost in is the identification with any of the thoughts that are going through the mind, whether it's even the thought I can't do this. 
Uh, it's really helpful to be able to ground the attention in the body if one can and be very careful of the content of the thinking because that usually, if we get into the content of the thinking, we just start to scare ourselves even more. So if fear happens and we make the choice of not opening to it, what happens usually is that the fear happens, it's unpleasant, we don't want to, we can't open to it, and aversion happens. We'll have aversion to the fear and the closing off. Uh, and at some point, you can be mindful of that. You know, it might not be that you can open in that moment or the next few moments. But what's great about mindfulness is that you can go five minutes with that backing off, and then suddenly, oh, it's just fear. It's okay. Or you might just say, <laughs> I'm going to have a cup of tea. I don't want to be with this right now. That's okay, too. And it's really to understand whether it's the fear of physical or mental pain that what we're afraid of is only the unpleasant feeling. You know, that's, it's simple. That's all it is. And the, the biggest fear is that we don't know how long it's going to last. We have that sense of the fear of the time of things. Oscar Wilde said that the basis for optimism is sheer terror. <laughs> the basis for optimism is sheer terror. I like that because it seems so much like what the practice is about. It's like if you can really be with the fear, it's totally optimistic. You can do it. You can really be with how the, the world is. That basis for optimism is going through it. One of the ways that I've learned to work with fear that are really important is to realize that there are times to work with it and times not to work with it. That it's really okay to, to go for it and see if one can be with it. And there are times where it's totally okay to head for the hills and not be with it. They're equally wise. One is skillful when we have mindfulness and one is stupid when we don't have mindfulness. It's stupid to go into fear if you're going to lose, you know, and get defeated and debilitated and not learn anything from it, but more fear. It's wise to go into it when the, the chances are that one might understand it, one might learn more how to experience it. In a lot of the ways that I measure that is around energy. If one has some energy, the likelihood of being mindful is stronger. If one's dead tired, the likelihood of being mindful <laughs> is not so great. And that's usually the time to be gentle. I do have a kayaking story that is gentle. And it happened, you know, right before I left for here. One of Steve's friends was uh, going out surfing. And it was one of those days in Hawaii where there was no wind. And the, the surfers didn't even think that there were waves out there, but I, I saw them. There were really waves, but they weren't the big waves. Uh, and they would call them swells. <laughs> so this guy, you know, he's, he just kept saying, if you're going to do it, Michelle, today's the day, really, you know, this is the perfect day for you to be out there. There's nothing out there to be scared of. And I'm like looking out like, sure, there's, there's swells out there. You know, so I decided he talked me into following him a bit. And then he was going to go off and surf. And he really gave me a big pasture. It's like, uh, it was the first time I experienced facing that fear and that I was within my limit. It was such a different experience because, you know, he left and I was just kind of going very slowly, very carefully to the spot where basically there were just these big swells, but they, they swells scare me. And I would watch how with each swell the, the water would just come way up and I'd think, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And then I'd go down and it's like, oh, I didn't die. And then it would be like, <laughs> I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. It was like, I didn't die. Uh, and it was just, just the right 
amount. Over and over, it was just the right amount. And in the past, I didn't get the right amount. And when I would come back, I would feel defeated and debilitated and more scared than ever. So this time, it was like I came back to shore, and it was like, hmm. (laughs) That was, I learned how to experience the fear. And I went within my limit, and I was less afraid at that point. Do you see the difference? If you go over your limit, I used to do that all the time in practice. I would think, I'm going to hold my nose, jump into the fear, and I'm going to just get to the bottom of terror and be done with it. Over. And then there'll be no more terror. And that's how I thought. You know, if you go into it, and then you, you know, like, face it, and the heroic thing, and then no more fear. But that's not how life is. You know, fear is a very human thing, and we all have our edge. It might not be waves with you, but it could be something. <laughs> There's insecurity somewhere. Uh, working within our limits. That experience with um, being with those waves, or swells, and being with the waves of fear helped me a few days later. I was, um, had just taught a course in Maui, and then I was going to Washington to teach another course, and I had three days at home in between. And I, had, I was quite busy, and I went out to just get some things before I flew out the next day. And while I was out, um, Steve and I had a woman, a 76-year-old, aunt of a friend of ours staying at the house because we were mostly gone. And while I was away, a very strange thing happened. It was like being in the twilight zone. And this guy came to the house, and he was looking for me, um, and he knew my schedule. He knew where I'd been. He knew where I was going. He said his name was Steve, and he said, and he was driving the same kind of car Steve drove. And he was really aggressive and he was looking for me, and he was screaming and saying, if she doesn't call, blah, blah, blah. It was horrible. And so this woman did really well with it. She said, I don't know who you're talking about. um, But it was really scary, because he he said some things that I don't feel like repeating, but it was pretty horrible. Uh, So when I got home, I had to call the police and do this whole thing, and it was like being stopped, basically. And that sense of you never know what's going to happen, sometimes things will happen, and it's really intense. So when I was on the phone with the police, this adrenaline was going through my system, and these waves of fear. Just a day before, I'd been with those waves, and I'd actually been able to be with them. And it was extraordinary to just watch that. The wave would come, and it would be like... (gasps) Ah, uh, and it was, it didn't stop, you know, it was one of those intense long ones, not a really short one. Uh, So the police left, and then this woman was so great, she's like of the older generation that um, likes to stay busy when you're afraid. So she just, I was, she just kept coming up to me and she goes, you're not busy enough, you've just got to keep busy. And I said, well, what do you want me to do? Call the airline and try to leave in two hours instead of like 10 hours? I mean, I'm pretty busy. I don't know if I can get any busier than this. She said, well, you're not acting busy enough. If you you get really busy, you're not going to be afraid. And so I said, okay. And she left for a while and I was packing and then it was getting toward time to sleep and she came up to me and she said, do you want a pill? (laughs) And she said, you just have to forget about it, honey. Just forget about it. I have a Valium. You just take a Valium. <laughs> and you're going to be okay. And I said, well, I prefer to stay up all night terrified than to take a <laughs> And it was so funny to see that difference. You know, it was like, oh, I'll just prefer to be with it. You know, you go to bed, you take your Valium. <laughs> I'll go in my bed. I'll, I'll lay awake all night. And it was great because... It was one of the first times that I could relate that experience with being on the waves. It was workable. I mean, it was not only just workable, it was totally workable. It was just a wave, and it would pass, and a wave, and it would pass. And it brought me so much happiness, 
to see that I could do that, you know, that it was workable for me. And it, it was all from taking the right dose in the water. It was all from being gentle and working with my limit. The world of an infant is quite interesting because there's no past or future for the world of an infant. So if you consider like being five months old or six months old, when the infant is in the room and mother walks out of the room, she's gone. And she's gone forever. You know, an infant can't rationalize that, oh, she's gone to go to the store or she's gone to the bathroom, or whatever it is. It's like, for in that moment, there's, it's, for an infant, time is eternal. And it's very hard for us to know what that's like, but we've all been there. No past or future, and everything is, feels permanent. Uh, and you can imagine how vulnerable that is, how insecure it really is. And sometimes on retreat, there'll be memories from, that are pre-verbal, you know, people have asked about them. It's like, not always. Some people don't have that. But when they do come up, it's kind of disorienting because there's not much rational that can help. It'll feel like, if you ever have the feeling like, say, hopelessness came up and it feels like it's going to last forever, usually that's something that actually happened when we were little. And we just have a chance to experience it for the first time. When we were little, when we were young, we didn't have the strength to experience it. You know, when you're little, you need somebody to come and reassure you and say, it's okay. As you get older, you start developing this ability to be mindful, to have the strength to experience pain. pain. A child, no, it's harder. What I found when some of these preverbal things came up, that again, compassion is first. You know, to expect that little mind to be mindful is, is, is like beating a horse when it's down. It, it's just, you just, if you had a little girl or a boy next to you and, and you were expecting them to be mindful when they were terrified, you know, you'd be, that isn't the way to work with that. You, you pick up the child and you reassure them. And so if there's ever experiences that you have which are, feel like they're overwhelming or intense, try to remember that sometimes being compassionate and reassuring is first. And then as you feel reassured, mindfulness will just happen. You know, it's, it's amazing. It's like just in the experiences that I've had with the terror or fear, first there's a thought, I'm going to die. I'm not going to survive it. Um, and often compassion comes in first. And then when I can feel that reassurance, I can open to that experience of not going to be able to survive. And often that identification from I'm not going to survive shifts to, well, I'm going to survive. Now that's another identification, but it's a much nicer one. <laughs> you know, it goes, it, it's like this gradual shift from I'm not to I am, to, oh, it's just fear. And then at that point, I'm able to feel the physical sensations in the body and the mental state, and it's totally okay. It arises and passes as, it, as a sound would. There's nothing greater than that freedom of anything that we've been afraid of for you it might not be what I'm talking about, but anything that we've been afraid of, that we start being able to gradually open to, it's, it's not getting rid of the fear, it's getting more tolerance of that experience to one is no longer afraid of that experience. And so the freedom is that that experience might come back ten hours later, but there's no fear of it anymore because one can experience it like you would a sound coming and going. I was at a teacher meeting recently this spring where I was describing how to work with some of the more 
pre-verbal early traumas that can come up in meditation. And there was a wonderful Vietnamese monk at this conference, and he came up to me at the end, and I was wondering if I was um, freaking some of the people out that, at their conference that might not have been used to that kind of description of uh, working in meditation. And he came up to me and he looked in my eyes just totally deeply, and he said, I'm so happy for you. And it was just incredible. It was like he understood that what I've been through has told, you know, it's liberated me. And I don't regret any of the stuff I've been through. It's like been my path of freedom. And for, you know, no one else did that. It's like, it was like amazing that he was just so happy for me. You know, mostly people will feel like, oh, that sounds like dark and kind of rough, you know, it's like, and it was, you know, but it was, uh, <laughs> uh, but there, that when there is somebody that will come up and celebrate that and, and not know me that well, it was such a, a wonderful feeling. And the idea, again, is that when one is less and less afraid of fear, one is more and more imperturbable. One's more at home on this earth there's less fear, and there's nothing more wonderful or happy. There's um, many things to say about fear because there's so many different ways it manifests. Sometimes we might experience the fear of being alone, or the fear of intimacy. And I came across last year while I was reading a book, um, this woman described going to a Benedictine monastery. And she went to the oldest monk in the monastery and asked the monk what his greatest obstacle to experiencing God was. And he said, the other monks. So everyone here, <laughs> there are times when you'll just really wish you were alone here. You know, it's so hard to open to everybody's stuff. You know, it's, <laughs> it's really hard. Uh, and you know, it's like we have this desire for the intimacy. There are times when we feel so comforted by all the people, and other times we just hate everyone being here. And I love that description of what the biggest obstacle to freedom was with everyone else in the monastery. <laughs> it's like that's usually how it feels, and yet that's what's really liberating us. It's so hysterical. <laughs> I wanted to give an example of what it's like to kind of work with fear from a real heroic view. You know, just really getting up there and charging it. And uh, I wanted to read a passage from a book. This man wrote a book about elephants and spent two years studying elephants. And he was in Africa <clears throat> at a Maasai uh, Mara, a whole savanna of land in Africa. And his guide was a young Maasai man named Tim, who uh, was not yet 20 years old. So he said that his most remarkable experience with Tim had nothing to do with elephants, except that we were looking for them at the time. Instead, we came upon a young male lion with two lionesses. They were working their way toward a Maasai man and his herd of cattle. As they drew closer, they began to belly along through the grass, then crouched to eye the cattle. The young male started growling. His tail switched with excitement. The lion half rose to coil for a running start several times. We'd better help that man, I said. No, Tim said firmly. He knows the lions are there. This is for him to do. He would not want us to interfere. The herder stood staring straight at the cats and slowly raised his spear to do a throwing position 
without once moving his gaze away. From a distance, other herders who had noticed the man's posture drew nearer to watch the standoff, but not too near. They too thought that this was for him to do. This is what he had been trained for as a Morin. Each time the male lion growled and poised itself, the man would shake his spear and spread his stance a bit. Each time the cat was still, the man was still, matching the animal's steadfast, golden-eyed stare. The standoff continued for a quarter of an hour. At last, the lions crouched away into a line of thorn scrub. Had the herder communicated the slightest hesitation or fear, I think they would have gone for his cattle in a flash. If these youngish lions hadn't known much about the Maasai when they started, they knew something now, and it might help them survive among people in the future. That's mindfulness, you know, it's that pure exploration with the fear. It's like beginner's mind. What's the fear doing? You, you match it, you know, you stare at it just as one stares at the lion. There's that possibility of just flowing with the experience like that. And we can do that. There are times to do that. When we have energy for that, that's when you do it. And you can see how powerful that is. There's nothing more powerful. And it's the power of this awareness that isn't tied to our experience. The awareness is free. It can, the awareness is so pure that it doesn't have to get rid of the fear. It, it's like you're with it and you face the experience by going through the fear with this caring awareness. At the end of um, retreats that I've had with Upandita, usually the last question he asks me is, what do you trust? And I, I never give him the answer he wants. And he usually looks totally disappointed in my answer. Um, but by that repetition of being asked, what do I trust at the end of retreats so many years, um, it really helped me uh, find my own answer. And I think that working with Upandita, I learned to trust deeply, not looking outside of myself for answers, but waiting, and waiting no matter how long it took that the, the wisdom would come from the inside. Uh, working with him really strengthened that for me. And I think that that sense of understanding life so deeply that we never really know what's going to happen uh, means that we don't necessarily trust life itself. You know, it's not that we're going to trust that moment-to-moment -moment change of pleasant or neutral, but we trust the path of awakening itself. You know, we can really trust mindfulness. We can really trust compassion. And that we all have that inside us. Just all we have to do is keep going. Let's sit for a minute.
be happy.